Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Professor Matthew King on the show to talk about his new book, In the Forest of the Blind, The Eurasian Journey of Fasian's Record of Buddhist Kingdoms, published by Columbia University in 2022. Um, a little bit about Professor King here. So Professor Matthew King is an associate professor in transnational Buddhism in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He is just starting a new project as a research scholar at the Weatherhead East Asian Institute at Columbia. Um, he is also currently serving as a director of Asian Studies at um, University of California, Riverside. He has published numerous works on Buddhism and the social history of knowledge along the Tibet-Mongol interface during the late and post-imperial periods. We'll definitely learn more about um, his current and upcoming projects uh, in this recording. So, Professor King, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So great to have you uh, actually back on the channel again. Um, So let's begin our interview with a little bit of self-introductions. So you have already done an episode with us uh, for your new book, uh, for your first book, Ocean of Milk, Ocean of Blood, with one of our hosts of the New Books in Buddhist Studies channel, Dr. Sensor Imaujit. So some of our listeners who have listened to that episode might have already heard a version of your self-introduction, uh, but for our new listeners and for a, a more updated version of your self-introduction, please say a few words about yourself and especially how you became interested in Asian studies in general, whether it be East or Inner Asian studies, um, and particularly in Buddhism. Um, sure. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Um, well, um you know, I became very interested, I think like a lot of people in Buddhist studies, um, interested in Buddhism before and apart from any kind of academic pursuit. Um, when I was pretty young, uh, about 14 or so, 15, I started getting really connected with um, Tibetan refugee communities and Buddhist temples and things like that um, in Canada, where I grew up, um, uh, also where you grew up. <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, you know, became very involved and connected with several lamas, um, Tibetan lamas who had fled Tibet in 1959 and grown up in exile and were sort of founding members of um, the Tibetan refugee and exile communities in places like Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. Uh, and uh, as you know, but some listeners might not, um, there's a, a huge and very historic Tibetan exile community in um, Canada, especially in Ontario, um, I think the largest, or it used to be the largest outside of, of India. So um, anyways, I really kind of had this like deep exposure to Buddhism, Buddhist history, Tibetan history, and so on, um, long before, uh, you know, even going to university and uh, traveled a lot and spent time in monasteries and things like that. And then um, 
though when I went to university, um, uh, you know, my parents insisted I go to university and not keep hanging out with monks. They, they had not had the chance to go to university. They'd worked very hard. Um, they just begged me to please at least try one year of university. And, and I did, and I fell in love with um, anthropology there, actually. So um, I have an art school background, and uh, I went to an arts high school, but I, I ended up minoring in drawing and painting as an undergrad, and then I majored in first linguistic anthropology and then uh, sociocultural anthropology. So, um, you know, it was really formative. And, you know, out of these massive classes, um, I actually had a chance to work as a research assistant for a couple professors that just like changed my life. And, um, you know, I think I was a, a common first generation college student experience where I didn't know how to act at universities. I didn't know what professors were, what opportunities there were, what the structure was. And um, getting a chance to be a research assistant as an undergrad really opened things up for me. Um, and uh, after my undergrad, though, um, I took time off and just worked in construction and terrible labor jobs. And uh, the t- the lamas, the Tibetan lamas I'd known, had independently begun traveling back to Mongolia for um, as part of the revival of Buddhism in Mongolia after the end of the socialist period uh, in 1990. And so this was around 2005 or so. Um, and so I was kind of had the opportunity to trail along with these lamas first to India and then to Mongolia, kind of as an attendant or as someone in the party of these lamas, as they did these huge teaching tours, not just through Ulaanbaatar, the major city, but also through the Gobi. Um, and I got to meet all of these important Mongolian lamas who are part of and are still part of the revival there. Um, And um, I came back and began being really interested in thinking about maybe doing graduate work, thinking about Mongolia or Tibet or something, and and then was encouraged to begin doing an MA. Since people were not really thinking about Mongolian Buddhism, I did a master's focused on kind of the anthropology of Buddhist revival in Mongolia between the Gobi Desert and sort of this emerging urban middle-class youth, basically like Buddhist, like uh, summer camps on the model of very successful Christian summer camps that were there in Mongolia. Um, And then, yeah, but while I was doing that, I, you know, and watching these Mongolian lamas kind of give this firebrand blood and soil version of Mongolian history to these rich kids who were dragged down to the Gobi for a couple weeks. And they were sort of being groomed to be future patrons of the monasteries and the monks and all that. And we're being taught how, being Mongol meant being Buddhist in this very particular way, I began realizing that, um, you know, there was a real dearth of historical work on the backdrop of what was going on, which was the revolutionary period in the early 20th century and the way that Buddhism and socialism and all this stuff really began interacting uh, in all kinds of complex ways in Mongolia and Siberia, and then later, of course, in the context of the PRC in China. So I ended up switching and doing historical anthropology focused on those sorts of histories in my PhD, and that's remained my interest till today. Great, thank you, thank you for um, walking us through your uh, academic and non-academic journeys alike. Um, so, in your first award-winning monograph, um, congratulations on, on so many achievements that uh, the Ocean of Milk and Ocean of Blood has uh, accomplished in the past few years. 
um, which was published by the Columbia University in 2019. Um, so in that book, you actually focus on the writings of um, this Mongolian Buddhist monk, Zava Damden, and how he envisioned the fast-changing world around him at the beginning of the turbulent 20th century. Um, but in the second monograph, um, you're turning to Fashen, a 4th century Chinese Buddhist monk and his travel writings. Um, some might consider this a big jump in academic interest, although, you know, after reading the book and listening to this episode, um, podcast episode, you might think otherwise. Um, so how did you become interested in Fashen? for the second project and the Ration journey of his uh, record of Buddhist kingdoms. Yeah. Um, thank you. Okay. Um, so yeah, with ocean of milk, ocean of blood, um, the project there was, you know, on, on the one hand, just to fill in the social and intellectual history of the experience of Buddhist monastic leaders um, who were the, you know, one of the dominant victims of Asia's first experiment in state, state socialism in Mongolia. Um, you know, previously there'd been some work on, you know, testimonies in court and interrogation records, but, you know, in those kind of sources, these monks could only speak their crimes, you know, before they were led to the prison camp or to the executioner, um, you know, to their execution or, you know, being forcefully disrobed and so on. And yet there's this huge amount of monastic writing over the 25 years of the socialist, well, nationalist and socialist revolutions in Mongolia prior to the real, you know, um, final wave of purges around 1937, 38. Um, anyway, so I wanted to fill in um, on in the first place with, with that book, um, the, the sort of way that Buddhists themselves were understanding the collapse of the Qing um, and what elsewhere was being celebrated by party leaders as this like entrance in, entrance into revolutionary modernity and emancipation and proletariat utopianism and all the rest, but which in these monastic sources were completely absent, unknown, else rejected, and um, you know sort of an alternative modernities type thing. But actually, I didn't want it to be simply um, a kind of conservative response. It's actually was just a completely other construction of space and time in the ruins of the Qing, um, where we find all these continuities of politics, history, social thinking beyond the political endings of the empire. So uh, anyways, I wanted to explore those topics. I wanted to push back on this dominance of research in Buddhist studies on Buddhist modernism, which is just looking at the way that all these Buddhist progressive thinkers kind of imagined inverted Orientalism and created a Buddhism um, that was fit for joining, you know, the League of Nation States and the global market economy and the sort of rationalist tastes of scientists and psychologists and, you know, and certainly making a Buddhism in the image of Protestant Christianity and all that. It's been widely studied. I just wanted to say, look, there's so much else happening here and actually thinking outside of the sort of dominant modes of um, the modern modernity and modernization, we actually come to a place in Buddhist studies where we have lots of really interesting things to say to all kinds of scholars outside of our field who are rethinking, you know, um, modernity studies, um, uh, you know, inter-Asian kind of history and all the rest. So anyways, that's a long way of saying that I, you know, that, that continues to be an interest of mine. Um, but in this book, I wanted to think more about circulation. Um, I wanted to think more about how inner Asia, 
and specifically kind of cosmopolitan, polylingual Tibetan and Mongolian monks, especially in the 18th and uh, sorry, 19th and early 20th centuries, were really at a global throughway, um, a real global Eurasian crossroads that once again, you know, thinking deeply about, I think brings us to um, all kinds of interesting possibilities in Buddhist studies and sort of inter-Asian area studies to contribute productively to all kinds of really important conversations in the critical Asian humanities and, and elsewhere and, and you know, decolonizing and de-imperializing our methods, especially in the humanities and social so we'll get there. But that ended up being the interest in for this this book. Um, you know, I'm still thinking about inter-Asian scholasticism in as part of these inter-Asian throughways. I'm thinking about theoretical and methodological implications about the, the sort of arise, I think, from these sources and the sorts of understudied histories they illuminate. And and I'm still pretty focused on my training in historical anthropology, which is not just thinking about what happened, you know, not just thinking about facts and events in history, but thinking about how people in other times and places constructed their own, you know, kind of in place themselves in place and time. What were the practices in which people in other places and time negotiated their, um, you know, frayed multiple presence in relationship to a past and a future and in relationship to community and moral order and political power. So that's all the same. And in the process, thinking about circulation, um, I also realized like, you know, there's essentially no histories of humanism outside of the Western European tradition. And if you read the one or two recent books on the history of the humanities, they acknowledge the fact early on, Um, you know, and so I was thinking and inspired by folks like Walter Mignolo and others who have looked at, you know, colonial, um, the experience of colonized people in Latin America and the way that they sort of received and co-opted and repurposed like Renaissance culture from Europe, you know, uh, early modern and enlightenment kind of knowledge traditions and artistic traditions as a way of sort of understanding and resisting their colonial experience. And I thought, you know, circulatory histories in Inner-Asia are a really interesting way to think about um globalizing and diversifying our histories, not just of something called Buddhism or something called Asia or something called the modern, but also something called the humanities and our own location as scholars kind of beholden to these histories today. Um, so that became the interest. And Fashian, um, very finally, you know, this Tibetan and Mongolian translation of Fashian, I, I came across these and kind of did the detective work, I guess, to figure out how these the the Tibetan and Mongolian works were connected to one another back as a PhD student, and I kind of just bracketed it. And you know, I I talked about this stuff even at you know Berkeley like eight years ago, long before I I published my first book. Um, but it was actually on the advice of Professor Johann Elverskog, who really urged me as I began thinking about this project to to explore the European side of the story and to not just write an article as I'd intended, but to think about a bigger history, which I'm really glad he did because it was through encountering the f- European, the French, the humanist side of this story that the whole project blew open for me, I guess, in ways we'll discuss. But that was the sort of, um, so there, it's not such a leap <laughs> guess, at least from my side. It's, it's all, it's, it, in some ways, it's a very connected project to the first book. 
Yeah, it is. Um, so our listeners, once you read the book, you will understand. And then thank you for turning that article into this book. <laughs> um, it's a really rich book. Um, so in this book, you said in the introduction chapter, um, it is really a anti-field history as well as a social history of knowledge that exposes the ecologies of imp- interpretation around Fashan's records. Uh, so please elaborate on these important interventions of the book for us a little bit, as well as why you think Fashan's record might serve as a fitting starting point for these intellectual explorations into the so-called forest of the blind. Yeah, thank you. Um, that is just such a such a great question. Um, it's really at the heart of um, the book and, and what I hope for anyone that reads it, what they might um, think with me about uh, some of these themes. I mean, so what I didn't want to do in this book was to just write about another, you know, quote unquote, type of, you know, Buddhism or world religion invented in the ecologies of the Orientalist Academy of the 19th century. Um There's a lot of important work on that stuff, Masuzawa, many others, um, who have told us very clearly and definitively about the, um, you know, kind of uh, conditions of invention of categories like Buddhism and in the context of world religions and and all the and the sort of exchanges that like are associated with the Buddhist modernist stuff that I described earlier, both the European construction of Buddhism as an object of knowledge, and then also is um, the sort of appropriation and um, uh, of that, that such discourses um, among progressive Asian nationalists and anti-colonial uh, figures um, who are kind of inventing an autonomous nation states. Anyway, so I don't, I didn't want to do that, this book. That's not the story of these sources at all. It would be a real grave injustice. So, you know, I think that it, I kind of started realizing early on that there's actually like a, a much more interesting, although to my knowledge, not widely explored set of questions and a kind of project with this book that I, I tried to experiment with um, as much as I could. And one of those was to get outside of thinking about field history. Because on the one hand, I'm saying in this book that the European scholar who we'll come to in a little bit, uh, Jean-Pierre Berlin-Moussat, in the early 19th century, who was the first sort of professional scholar of Buddhist Asia uh, in, in, in Europe or in the world, I guess. Um, I didn't want to just sort of write a book that is, you know, ends with saying we should place him at the start of a genealogy of a discipline. Um, I wanted to think about the ways that Abbé Mousset and the natural philosophy that and its disciplinary practices and so on that he wielded so famously, um, we're actually part of a wider and far less centered ecology of exchange that connected him to the, <coughs> excuse me, to the court of the Qing Empire in the century before, in the 18th century, the courts of Qianlong, for example, um, and the many Tibetan and Mongolian workers and translators and intelligentsia of Qianlong's court whose textual products ended up in Paris and then kind of become the basis for Abelheim Mousset's work, including his own exploration of Fashion. And then I also, you know, needed to think, conceive of a way of, of talking about how he was connected to these later inner Asian readers 
um, when none of these people knew of each other exactly. They're not quoting one another. There's no colonial relation of force here either. Um, they are not beholden to one another in a colonial regime. Um, these are sort of, in other words, this is a circulation of erasure, of silencing, of poaching um, that was nonlinear. And so this, this idea of anti-field history is basically <coughs> um, what I hope would be the main point of this book or the main takeaway for people is that um, there are thousands of these stories. The humanities are made through basically these purifying other contiguous or adjacent knowledge traditions, right? Transforming the messy social worlds of people in Los Angeles into the scholarship, into, into writing and analysis that uh, in anthropology or sociology or whatever. Um, uh, and that um, I wanted to write a book that sort of straddles these porous frontiers of the humanities and the knowledge traditions upon which it depends to produce things like history, geography, philosophy, and the rest. And also to think about how, um, you know, knowledge from the humanities, you know, especially classically that are made as part of this extension of the borders of the, you know, kind of political and epistemic sovereignty claimed by, you know, the West uh, as the source of the universal, universal history, universal knowledge, how the products of this sort of humanist work escapes the epistemic and political sovereignty claimed by scholars like Abel Mousset. Um, how they circulate, how they become the, the, the resources for other types of knowledge traditions to reify other world historical orders. In this case, it has to do with Tibetan and Mongolians and, and monks and all thinking about Fashan, but there's hundreds of thousands of these stories among all kinds of those experiencing, um, you know, uh, interacting with, with Europe and its colonial and imperial projects all around the world. So this notion of anti-field history, which is sort of doing a Deleuze and Guattarian sort of, you know, pushing back against linear tree-like uh, um, models of knowledge of impact and influence and thinking about the, you know, the rhizome about decentered, um, constantly mutating centerless contexts and conditions for producing knowledge about the world, I think is a far more interesting way of um, doing about positioning ourselves today in the humanities, ultimately. And I think that, um, um, yeah, the, and so, you know, these are histories. Anti-field history includes, you know, the construction of the West, of the humanities, of the social sciences or whatever. It includes the conditions and outputs of those processes, but it, it also exceeds them. It erases them, right? Um, that's what I wanted to think about and sort of like, I guess, theorize or more than that, kind of try to um, show, to model, model, to model in this, in this book. Um, whether I'm successful or not, I, I, I don't know. Um, but that, that sort of project, I think, is full of methodological and disciplinary possibilities today, not just for new histories about the past. You know, that's, that was where I got with that anti-field uh, history stuff. There's lots more to say, but maybe I'll, that's all I'll say here. Great, thank you so much. Yes, yeah, so the so the book and and the interventions you have in the book, um, I, I see great, you know, discussions coming from it in seminar classes, graduates seminar classes, but also undergraduate classrooms. So it's, it will be a really interesting book to 
um, to to have in in you know these kinds of discussions. Um, mm-hmm. So um, let's walk through the chapters a little bit. So chapter one, uh, entitled Chang'an to India, presents mainly the two separate biographical accounts of Fa Xian, composed by the Chinese monk biographer Sheng Yu and Hui Zhao in the fourth to the fifth centuries. Um, so starting with these very early accounts of Fa Xian and his travels, and also how he um, interacted or encountered or came into contact with a geography, a Buddhist geography. Um, how was time and space between Chang'an and India sort of first imagined in these early Chinese Buddhist accounts? Uh, you mentioned in the introduction that the record, Fashion's record, orders time by means of space. I really love this idea. Uh, so tell us more what you mean in this early Chinese context. Sure. Um, yeah, and you know, this is in the early Chinese context and text, but also it it kind of organizes the um, the French and Mongolian and uh, Tibetan and Siberian um, readers that I look at in the, in the book as well. So it's um, a great question. Thank you. So, well, you know, in very basically, I mean, Fashian, the story, the witnessing of Fashian, um, this monk who left um, Chang'an in the year 399 as an old man in search of Vinaya or Buddhist monastic codes and sort of walked across what um, today we sort of think of as the Silk Road down into India through Afghanistan and Pakistan to Sri Lanka and then by ship via Java to, to China over the course of 14 years. Um, in a lot of ways, this was um, sort of terra incognito for, in Chinese letters, um, the, uh, there had been other um, uh, sort of explorers um, or emissaries of different Chinese states and courts prior to Fashan, of course, who had walked some of that distance and the exchange of especially of merchants and monks, Buddhist monks between South Asia and East Asia was already centuries old. But in terms of a written account of a monk like Fashan walking westwards from China um, into across the sort of mosaic of Buddhist city states um, uh, across the Taklamahan and into the you know, um, uh, yeah, South Asia through through Central Asia and so on. Um, that Fashion's account is is pretty new, and um, one thing that we uh, see as a sort of structure of the text that resulted is that Buddhist history, the places of South Asia and East Asia, basically the landscape uh, through which Fashion walks. Yeah. So in any case, so basically history is told through movement across space in the original uh, text that um, uh, uh, Fashian's original account, the uh, the Fuguoji, right? The, the kind of record of Buddhist kingdoms um, that he wrote, um, you know, we think in about the year 416 or so after he'd returned to China. Um, but it's really interesting in light of the sort of circulatory histories that I'm looking at in the 19th and the early 20th century, where, you know, Ma, um, narratives about history and about geography, uh, about community, about shared religious, political, cultural inheritance are not chronological. They're not really bounded. They're not exclusive. They they are mobile. They are interactive. And it all kinds of 
you know, both the construction of a science of Buddhist Asia, as the French were beginning to call their work in the 19, or 1820s and 30s, as well as all this Tibetan and Mongolian scholastic knowledge that resulted, um, they're all thinking with and following along after and trying to sort of look over the shoulder of Fashion's walking as they deal with and try to make sense of these innumerable conundrums sort of posed by his text, what he saw, um, uh, uh, the people he encountered, the traditions he witnessed, and what their legacies were in the contemporary period. Um, and also, though, I'll say that, um, you know, this sort of ordering um, time by means of space is also so closely connected to notions of text and textuality, um, of being able to read similitude, you know, shared histories across all these different modes of inscription and language. And this becomes a real important um, uh, um, kind of theme, not just for Fashian and for those helping him write his account in China once he returns. And then, of course, all the Chinese, Japanese and Korean readers of Fashian's account over the, you know, many, many, many centuries afterwards. But this notion of sort of thinking about space and time and coming up with synthetic models of the Eurasian past of Buddhist Asia or in other rubrics, Jambudipa, Zambuling, right? Writing not mm -hmm. just capital H history, but also Chijung uh, in, in Tibetan or Tukh in Mongolian or whatever. Um, they're all sort of like, looking, as I say, over Fasian's shoulder as he witnessed this mosaic of difference walking from China into these unknown lands of South Asia and the sort of heartlands of Buddhism, they're all also trying to interpret in their own knowledge traditions and in their own literary kind of textual cultures and modes of interpretation as well. So that, yeah, there's just this constant sort of welling up of interactions between space, between textuality, uh, and history and all these kind of mediating practices around each that connect all these figures, even though they didn't really know about each other or um, in, in, in any great detail. Yeah, thank you for your answers. And, and in chapter two, Beijing to Paris, we see a part of this uh, circulatory history starting to happen. So here we learn about Jean-Pierre, about Rumasat's knowledge of poaching. Um, I like um, how you use the word poaching here of mm -hmm. chain sources to discipline Buddhist Asia into the object of a transregional science. Uh, so how did he and, and his colleagues um, at the time come to know about Fashian's record in the first place? And how did they first approach these Buddhist writings and the idea of Buddhist Asia? And, and more importantly, what do their disciplinary efforts tell us about 19th century Orientalist scholarship about um, on Buddhist Asia that we don't already know. Yeah, thank you. Oh my God, there's so much to say here, so I will just try to, <laughs> try to hit the highlights. And anyone interested, I, I really hope could at least check out this chapter because there's so much here. I mean, this this yes. this chapter really could have been a book. Maybe maybe one day it'll grow to become something else. Just to really make sure that the details of this stuff isn't lost in this bigger study. Um, very briefly. Um, so Jean-Pierre Berger-Mousset is really, he's well known as, as sort of founding a quote-unquote modern sinology in the sort of field histories of sinology. You'll always find mention of Jean-Pierre Berger-Mousset. He 
was, you know, is credited with being the first to write uh, a grammar of Chinese. Um, you know, Europeans had, you know, famously decided in the 18th and early 19th century that Chinese did not have a grammar, which had all these implications like that that meant that the Chinese did not have systematic thought and all this kind of stuff. Um, and um, Abethe Musset, you know, famously taught himself Chinese from um, Chinese Chinese dictionaries in Paris, um, but also he taught himself Manchu and he actually learned Chinese via Manchu Chinese Kind of guidebooks that had that were in the shelves of um, uh, the Bibliothèque Royale in Paris because of the long history of exchanges in the 18th century, both uh, among you know merchants, but especially long-term residents, missionary residents, Jesuits, and so on in the courts of Qianlong and Kangxi and so on. Um, you know, lots of materials had ended up on the shelves of the um, of the libraries in, in Paris. And, um, and, you know, Mark Elliott, for example, has um, written a little bit about how Abakri Musset's approach to just learning Chinese and then later on his own um, sort of uh, the, the chair in Sinology that was created for him at the Collège de France um, was already really saturated and influenced by and basically mirroring back the um, ideas of, of polyglot sovereignty and its sort of infrastructure that were in place in the Qing. In other words, Abelie Musset is a, the sort of distant forerunner to what gets called new Qing studies in like the 1990s and early 2000s, right? A sort of, you know, moving outside of just Chinese sources and Han-centric histories to think about um, especially inter-Asian um, literatures and histories and peoples and, and, and all the rest in, in, um, in sort of Chinese imperial history. In, in any case, Abakhim Musset, so it's, it's kind of recognized in as a sort of footnote or maybe a, a paragraph or two in a lot of the field histories of Sinology um, because he sort of actually knew Chinese. He, he understands his grammar. He does a lot of like philological and historical stuff that seems really familiar to us today. He, his Sinology seems professional. It was institutionalized at the Collège de France and he's sort of a disciplinary founder. But what he is completely or nearly unrecognized for in um, in Buddhist studies um, is that he is not just thinking about something called quote-unquote Chinese history. The bulk, I would say, or uh, of his scholarship was uh, thinking about the history, the literature, the geography, and what he calls the, the ethics and metaphysics of Buddhism. And he's really the first to do this in um, with you know, using rigorous methods and working across all kinds of different uh, languages and sources, kind of text-critical perspectives, um, uh, Pan-Asian comparison, and actually a, a kind of scholarship founded in language and literacy. So, um, you know, this is all described in the book, but the point is, is that it's not just Abakim Musset's Sinology that is really sort of reflective of a kind of Manchu Han interaction in the context of the Qing Empire, which was, you know, the the empire that was that was around when Abel Musset was there, you know, 1644 to 1911. Um, but I'm claiming that it's also his his um, scholarship about Buddhism. So two quick points there are is that that in the eight the um, uh, I think in 1819 Abel Musset is 
confirming through all kinds of evidence drawn from many different sources and languages that the Buddha, for example, had been a man in history and not some avatar of Odin or Mercury, not some quote unquote kinky haired Ethiopian, the quote, you know, the, the black Buddha thesis that some had had, um, you know, uh, the Buddha that Abba said is able to basically fix the Buddha definitively using evidence as a historical figure um, and one that had lived in India somewhere. Um, there were other theories that he was Egyptian or whatever else. Um, so Abba said, in other words, is sort of fixing the Buddha early on in his career, is fixing the Buddha out of the sort of ether of the non-West, this sort of unsystematic thinking of the non-West of the 18th century. He's fixing the Buddha into time. But through reading Qing sources, as I discovered in my research and looking through archives at the um, the National Archives of Paris, where you have all this handwritten uh, stuff from Albert Mousset, as early as the 18, sort of 10 or a little bit earlier, um, Albert Mousset is reading the polyglot Buddhist encyclopedias produced in the 18th century, right? He's reading uh, Qing texts and Qing imperial projects to reconcile and establish the equivalencies of um, uh, of meaning across Sanskrit, Tibetan, Mongolian, Chinese, and in some cases, uh, Uyghur, right? Chagate. So um, Abakhimus that's reading this, and literally, I mean, I found it's in the book. Um, I have his handwritten notes as he copies um, one particular of uh, uh, one of these encyclopedias where he's literally seeing like, oh, okay, you know, Buddha is the same as Burhan, is the same as Sangye, is the same as Fo, and so on and so forth. He's literally discovering and inventing directly from Qing sources what was radically new in his work, which was the idea of there being something called Buddhist Asia, L'Orient Bouddhiste. This is new. This is really new. Of course, missionaries for centuries before him had looked at statues in Japan or Sri Lanka or wherever and come up with like regional knowledge about, oh, this is, you know, some God named the Buddha or whatever else. Um, but it's Abari Mousset who invents Buddhist Asia as a, basically what I call like as a kind of continent of relation and interaction um, uh, that allowed natural philosophers in Europe to suddenly think about the histories of Java in relationship to, you know, those of Japan, you know, uh, what he would call ethics and metaphysics in Mongolia in relationship to what was happening in pre-Islamic Afghanistan and Pakistan, and especially thinking about Chinese antiquity in relationship to Indian antiquity, which this was completely new intellectual territory in Europe as well. And so, I mean, there's so much to say here, but I'll stop. But the one point I want to make is that these are new genealogies for what, for those of us who kind of imagine ourselves to be in something called Buddhist studies, whatever that means today, I don't know. But Abari Mousset folds his work, not, you know, in relationship to all these kind of important Orientalists of his day and so on, but the deeper genealogy is back to Leibniz. Leibniz, the famous philosopher and mathematician. And it's Leibniz, his theories in the 18th century, uh, 17th century rather, and early 18th century about universal similitude across difference, kind of genealogical tables, like exploring difference, 
uh, or the ways that difference mirrors similitude in language and mathematics and all these other many, many different kind of parts of his of his work of his thinking. It's Albert Mousset who links what he's doing in his new, what he calls Science of Buddhist Asia, to, as a Leibniz in, inflected project. So this sort of continent of Buddhist Asia, this continent of relations and interactions, which on the surface seems so different, Mongolian letters versus Chinese versus Sanskrit and Pali ones and, you know, Sri Lankan ones and Java, Javanese ones and Pakistani ones or whatever else, um, they, they hide for Abel Mousset, this shared legacy of ideas, of metaphysics, of ethics, of capital H history, capital H geography, sorry, capital G geography. And ultimately, Buddhist Asia is a field of possibility for becoming modern in Europe. And this is like really foundational stuff that has not really been explored in the history of Buddhist studies and the history of, this is decades before the invention of the world religion. This is earlier than um, um, uh, uh, Bernoff's work on Indian Buddhism. Uh, Bernoff was, a, in fact, a student of Abakhi Mousset. I mean, Abakhi Mousset is creating the methodological practices, standardizing the disciplinary expectations. He's founding the journals. He's creating the academic spaces for what we call, in many ways, Asian studies, but I would say specifically Buddhist studies. And it's drawn directly, directly from Qing sources. And he's basically feeding Qing sources, Qing models of equivalency, polylingual, polynational, kind of polysocial sources through a Leibnizian frame and arriving at what he celebrated for, which is a genius uh, for inventing a, a quote-unquote science single-handedly, and this was the science of Buddhist Asia. Wow. Yeah, it's really fascinating to learn <laughs> that Buddhist studies, the, the, the field and the discipline is linked to Leibniz and the Qing polyglot dictionaries, and, and that new Qing history is not really that new. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and moving on. So in chapter three, we kind of move to um, another, I guess, leg of the circulatory history, um, Buddhist Asia to Jemdu Diva. Here we see mm-hmm. an inversion of the Orientalist gaze, and and we learn about the reception and reinterpretation of Orientalist scholarship amongst the quote unquote Orientals themselves, which is something you mentioned in the book that Saeed has never really explored in full. Um, so first, mm-hmm. you introduce Dorji Benzarov, a Buryat uh, ethnologist and philologist, and his Mongolian translations of about Rumasat's. Um, pardon my French here, Edition de Royaume Bouddhique in the yes. 1840s. Um, yes. Then you introduce to us an old friend, Zavadandam, Lupsam Damdan, uh, the protagonist in your first book, of course, who translated Fashian's record into Tibetan from Benzarov's Mongolian version uh, in the 1910s. Uh, so how was Abel Rumasat's record received in the subsequent inter-Asian translations? What was uh, sort of reproduced and what was erased? Uh, what do these versions of Fashian's record tell us about knowledge production in the inter-Asian context? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So um, the French translation of Fashian's um, Ugochi is... Um, 
The translation of the Chinese into French is about 50 pages. But the book that is published in French, the um, the Relation de Royaume Boudique in 1836, it's um, like five, 450 pages. So basically, it's a, it's a heavy, heavy statement on like the state of knowledge about Buddhist Asia about 20 or so years into Abel Mousset's assumption of this role at the center of this sort of um, Orientalist, pan-European, and including Russian sort of Orientalist project to know and document uh, Buddhist, this this continent of Buddhist Asia, right? This relational continent of Buddhist Asia. So um, the work, in other words, like is full of like encyclopedic essays hanging from every translated noun, almost literally, of Fashian's record. And it's just, you know, we see Abelke Mousset and his editors, you know, reflecting on in major ways on what they call philosophy, history, and geography. So philosophy, you know, um, uh, all kinds of, you know, kind of early presentations and systematic explorations of um, Buddhist notions of nirvana, of renunciation, of um, compassion like bodhicitta, the figures of arhats and bodhisattvas and Buddhas and all this stuff. Um, but really importantly, the just the bare contours of the geography of pre, uh, or, or sorry, very early um, uh, Buddhist societies, especially in what later becomes the Muslim world. Um, and then in history, especially, you know, showing on the basis of Fashion's record and witnessing, trying to prove, um, you know, not just that the Buddha had been a man in history, which Abel Musad had explored earlier in his career, but specifically where the Buddha had been had been born and lived. This was also something that Abel Musad was the first to sort of show definitively in um, in European intellectual history, um, uh, and also the spread of the Buddhist Sangha and all kinds of other things. So basically, it's questions of philosophy, geography, and the bare kind of like historical record of when the Buddha might have lived, where uh, where the community of his followers spread from India out of uh, into, into other places, the kind of waves of Buddhist history and um, the sort of spatial temporal kind of uh, contexts and, and, and uh, of Buddhist Asia. So anyways, um, this this is this work is published in France in 1836, uh, four years after Abel Musa dies in the cholera epidemic that, that that rushes through Eurasia and North America. So, it's a posthumous work, um, and it's celebrated everywhere as like this triumph, right? As I show in the book. But what um, nobody in Europe knew is that this text very quickly, very quickly leaves not just the French Academy, not just the Orientalist, you know, professional societies and journals of Orientalism, but it leaves the epistemic and political sovereignty of the West. Any reference to moral narratives of progress, of, you know, universal knowledge, of um, modernity, all these other things that organize Abel Mousset's work, and it gets put to uh, gets dramatically reinterpreted, not just translated into Mongolian and Tibetan, but Fashan's witnessing is dramatically reinterpreted um, in Inner Asia. And that's where the second kind of focus of the book is. And um, briefly, you know, there's a thousand details, but the br- briefly is that through Dorji Banzarov, who's this really fascinating and important 
early figure in inner Asian uh, intellectuals participating sort of in peripheral and really interesting ways in um, European and Russian intellectual life, um, in what's being called ethnology and Orientalism, um, philology, and so on. These are sort of what gets called in the history of, of anthropology you know, quote unquote, native practitioners, which is an uncomfortable phrase, but they're um, widely studied kind of um, figures elsewhere, like in, in Africa and uh, in, in the Americas and so on of, of um, people who are not just, you know, move from being objects of anthropological inquiry to practitioners of anthropology. Um, but, but Dorji Banzarov is a really interesting figure from inner Asia that hasn't really been given his dues. And so he, um, is uh, is plucked out of the Siberian uh, frontiers of Tsarist Russia and is given this education um, and, you know, learns French and all the rest. And as part of a number of really important works that he does before he dies in his 30s, he produces a sort of manuscript copy of Abarri Mousset's work. You know, this was a famous work, you know, just explosive work in France. And, you know, within a decade, it had circulated and was well known among intelligentsia and orientalists in Russia, and it comes into Dorji Banzarov's hands in ways that aren't well documented. Um, but, um, you know, I kind of take a guess of when and how in the book. So uh, Banzarov, you know, translates the French, um, and he's able to read the footnoting, and he kind of works some of those ideas into the footnoting. But what Dorji Banzarov's interest becomes, and he does this by sort of poaching from the French footnotes in a lot of ways is Fashian's Fuguoji starts becoming a history of Mongolian and Tibetan Buddhism and not a history of fifth century, a fifth century Chinese monk, Han monk walking across Central and South Asia in order to bring the Vinaya to um, China and a kind of witnessing of thriving Buddhist city states that it seems like Fashian hoped. Um, were great examples of patrons and devoted Buddhist polities and, and laity and so on that he hoped would be reproduced in uh, China, which is why he kind of represented them so strategically and kind of um, in an exaggerated way in his work. Um, Fasia, uh, the, the, the Siberians, the Mongolians, and Tibetans involved in this story, they're not interested in that history. They're interested in reinterpreting, of sort of looking over Fashian's shoulder in the context of their own knowledge traditions and having Fashian witness the deep history of Mongolian and Tibetan peoples and of Mongolian and Tibetan Buddhism, um, specifically. You know, they know the things that interest the Orientalist in Europe, like when and how the Buddha lived, what he taught, his philosophy, the sort of philosophy, geography, and history of Buddhist Asia was not contested knowledge in Inner Asia. They had a pretty, all these readers in Inner Asia had a pretty good sense of when the Buddha lived, what counted as Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy, the geography of Jambudipa and of the Buddhist um, uh, dispensation and all that. What they're in, What's new through their reading of Fashion's record is this... Uh, very early record of what they want to be Mongolian and Tibetan places, peoples, polities, and Buddhist history, well beyond the usual historical records from Tibet and Mongolia that they'd been working from. Um, 
So yeah, that becomes, and, and then, you know, and to translate and inscribe and reinterpret with their own elaborate annotations and footnoting Fashion's record into the sort of like, you know, bare translations of Banzaroff, but then as the work translate, you know, moves into Halkha Mongolia with Thawadamdin, and then later on into the Tibetan refugee communities of the 1960s in Tibetan letters, um, really written into very familiar genres of monastic histories like uh, Chujung and Namtar and all this stuff. Um, yeah, so, you know, for the humanists and the the, the Orientalists in Europe, Fashian becomes this sort of like pre-modern rationalist, kind of almost like pseudo-Orientalist who's providing occasion for all this rational, you know, kind of uh, dramatic expansion of metaphysics and history and geography and ethics and all this stuff. And in inter-Asian letters, Fashian and Fashian's text becomes an extension of the Abhidharma, the Kala Chakra Tantra, the Abhidhamsaka Sutra, and, you know, a thousand years of historical and biographical writing in the Republic of Tibetan and Mongolian letters. And of course, at the in the context of the Qing and the late Qing, this elaboration of Buddhist scholastic writing in Inner Asia that looking at things like world geography, um, polyglot histories, and all the and it basically the same tradition that Abel Musset's reading from the library shelves in Paris, these polyglot manual Qing manuals of equivalency. I mean, it was Tibetan and Mongolian monks that wrote those things. And then they're receiving a Balkhay Muset's, you know, uh, translation of Fashian and reinscribing it into these late and post-Qing models of equivalency and scholasticism uh, in, in their own way. So it's, this is, it's this really beautiful circulation and circulation and kind of um, play of speech and erasure, silence and speech that include but don't privilege the humanities, um, which helps produce new visions of the epistemic and political sovereignty of the West, but also completely excludes them as it extends, say, Qing frames of world historical order and all the rest. Yeah, thank you for this explanation. And it almost seems as if Fashion was being possessed by different gazes, right? By uh, Masats and, I mean, Fashion dawns on orientalist gaze as he walks through kind of buddhist asian and then in the inner asian kind of versions mm-hmm. he he has this enlightened gaze right so we'll talk mm-hmm. about these um more in more detail in the next two chapters um so in the conclusion of chapter three you said that the uh, circulatory history of fashion's record is not simply about buddhist asia forged in europe into other places that were not europe uh, but rather the story is organized by, quotes, um, a chain of site-specific and different orientations to knowledge itself of treatments for traces of the past of methodology, unquote. Uh, so having this in mind, we move on to the next two chapters, which look at these circulatory processes of knowledge production more closely uh, from Jampadiva to science and then back to Jampadiva. So these two chapters, chapter four and five, are sort of, you know, um, the, the responses or the kind of next parts to chapter two and three, if I'm reading it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. So uh, so in chapter four, Jambu Diva to Science, you tell us that the publication of about Rumasat's uh, Edition de Royaume Boudique in 1836 was a sensation and he was lauded uh, by reviewers all over Europe and its colonies for his genius uh, of disciplining uh, Buddhist Asia into a, a science. Uh, 
Um, so more specifically on the topic of speech and silence, what did this piece of Orientalist scholarship establish specifically and mute for the discipline of Buddhism and Buddhist Asia? Yeah, thanks. So, so I mean, um, as I've kind of gestured to um, this morning already that, you know, Abel Rimouset is basically working through a kind of chain of production whereby Qing sources, among other sources, um, uh, and Qing collections of Chinese literature, which is how he also encounters Faxian's record. Um, I forgot to mention that earlier on the shelves of, of Paris. It had been there already. Um, and especially these polyglot, you know, Sanskrit, Chinese, t- Tibetan, Mongolian, Manchu, and sometimes Uyghur um, uh, dictionaries and encyclopedias of Buddhist history and philosophy and doctrine and, you know, uh, all the rest. Um, he's mining all these things through a sort of classical purificatory practice of establishing fact and event in the discursive arenas of history, geography, philosophy, you know, in the context of European natural philosophy and Orientalism of the early um, 19th century in France. So, you know, what's being muted are the sources themselves, right? Um, And what is being muted is, uh, yeah, the, the sources themselves through what I keep wanting to center in this book as basically methodological in, innovations, right? Principles and practices that basically I think we're still we're still using today, like evidentiary scholarship founded in language and literacies, um, examined in Pan-Asian comparison, text criticism, philological reconstruction. I mean, this is what grad programs in Buddhist studies still look like, right? Um, and so he's really doing that. He's modeling that. He's really inventing that in ways that, as I said in the book, causes sensation. I mean, this isn't minor stuff. Hegel is reading Abel Rimouset. Schopenhauer and Nietzsche are reading Abel Rimouset. That's how those guys are coming up with their philosophy of Nicht, of nothingness, of Buddhism, of the so-called a supposed sort of nihilism of Buddhist philosophy, either in the work of Abel Rimouset. Abel Rimouset knew Hegel directly. They were colleagues. Um, but or else, you know, from the work of Abarimuset's students and the sort of early work in the fields he establishes. Um, also, the von uh, the Humboldts, like Alexander and Wilhelm von Humboldt, the most important scientists of the early 19th century in the world, are reading and deeply engaging Abarimuset's work. So again, these are this is major, major stuff, major implications. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's muting and drawing directly from literally, as I've shown an image in the book, literally drawing hand drawing lines from Qing sources to <laughs> to humanist knowledge um, in these modes, um, and that becomes the um, the uh, um, the the process of speech and erasure that produced what he called the science of Buddhist Asia, but it's also the, the play of silence and speech that produces, that made my book. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, that makes all knowledge, in fact, um, not just humanist knowledge, not just social scientific knowledge. Um, and so this is the kind of play that, that, that I'm really interested in thinking more deeply about uh, in relationship to this specific circulatory history. 
Um, yeah. So otherwise, I think maybe that's all I need to say. I, I kind of explained some of the other stuff uh, earlier. Yeah, thank you. And and in this chapter, it's interesting to learn how fashion was turned into more of a human and then optimist, right? You write a lot about mm-hmm. this and how he um, sheds tears. He he cries um, yes. in the in the story of the travels. Well, well, we'll talk about this a little more in the other inner version, uh, inner Asian versions. Um, he he became this dried eyed kind of um, interestingly. Uh, more enlightened, but also like rational figure. Um, so, so speaking of that, so chapter five, science back to the history of the Dharma um, is definitely one of my uh, favorite chapters in the book. Here you look at how inner Asian Buddhist uh, historians, such as Zavadamdan again, writing in the early 20th century revolutionary Mongolia um, and Nakwang Nima, um, Tibetan writers writing in the 1960s uh, exile communities in India, uh, attempted to make sense of Buddhist history and geography through Fashan's record via about Rumasad's and others' translations. Um, so again, right, the, the, the reinterpretation of Buddhist Asia in these inner Asian historical discourses are really fascinating. So how was uh, Abel Rumusat's science, this Orientalist science, turned or rather silenced now into the history of the Dharma or this genre of writing called Chujun? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you know, there's, a, there's many, many examples, um, but I would say, let me give you two Two major ones, and if anyone's interested, the, the this chapter especially has um, all kinds of examples uh, beyond these two. But for basically pivoting off of Dorji Banzarov's Mongolian translation of the French in the mid nineteenth century into this translation of the Mongolian into Tibetan letters in Mongolia <laughs> by Zawadamdin, um, uh, and then. Once this chain of translation and reinterpretation was in Tibetan letters, then later from um, 1917, which is when the first Zawadamdin did his work, um, into the Tibetan refugee community of the 1960s, really interesting things happened looking over the shoulder of Fashan. Um, As I said already, these these inner Asian readers of Abel Musset's translation and reinterpretation of Fashian, they were not interested in reconciling, you know, what was unknown about what the Buddha taught about the timing and spatiality and the content of the Buddha's biography. I mean, these were very old established traditions in these intellectual history, you know, intellectual traditions already. Um, you know, even though there was some, you know, there's definitely debates around all those things in Tibetan and Mongolian Buddhist scholastic writing, um, the the interest in Fashan wasn't really there so much. Um, what becomes really interesting is that Fashan, for them, s- seems to have witnessed ancient, ancient precursors to Mongolian and Tibetan society and Buddhist history. Right. And so through all kinds of twists and turns in their understanding and translations and interpretations of sort of opaque references in Fashan's work, um, suddenly Fashan is walking from China to India across Mongolian and Tibetan space. 
he's not walking through Buddhist city-states or non-Buddhist city-states through his trials and tribulations on his way to India. He's walking across explicitly Mongol, Uyghur, and Tibetan places. He's walking across by recognizable Tibetan mountains and pilgrimage places. He's walking across early, early, early um, sites that that on the basis of his text, these 19th century and early 20th century inner Asian authors could claim as Mongolian and Tibetan space, like the ancient city of Khotan in the Taklamahan region. Um, uh, and then even as Fashian walks through India and sort of encounters the Buddhist past through stupas and monuments and the Buddhist modern of his time through these thriving Buddhist monastic you know, uh, communities, he continues in the inter-Asian translations to meet Mongolians and Tibetans. Basically, what in the Chinese uh, and even in the French are sort of just non-Buddhist, maybe, you know, uh, Indian uh, religious practitioners and people, they become uh, bun, like non-Buddhist kind of um, bumpos, like uh, practitioners. Um, or they become Mongolian devotees in the fourth century at the sites of the Buddha, uh, you know, Bodhgaya or whatever. Um, and um, so, what gets filled out in the what Abel Musset's French translation, this triumph of sort of you know Western Orientalism, gets completely erased and deconstructed and repurposed to extend the historical record of monastic history, going right back to Indian canonical sources like the Abhidharma and the Kalachakra, and then and then these like very long histories of of obsessive writing about the, the past that really defines Mongolian and Tibetan literary history, even much more than Indian or Chinese um, Buddhist literary history. So and it's it's to fill in especially the deep history, the deep history, the early dispensation, right? The Nadar of Buddhism and of Mongolian and Tibetan civilization at a really important time, right? This is during the collapse of the Qing and of the Tsarist period. This is during the birth of a pan-Mongolian nationalism. This is during the invention of something called a Tibetan, Siberian, or Mongolian national subject in the context of mass state violence and exclusion. Um, so, you know, finding an ancient Chinese witness to the pan-Eurasian Mongolian antiquity or pan-Eurasian Tibetan antiquity wasn't, um, you know, was was interesting. It had implications and it really changes and appends, adds a whole new first chapter in all kinds of monastic um, writing uh, in, in many ways that I explore in this book, but kind of beyond what, what I should say here. But the last thing I'll say is that, you know, in once it had been brought into Mongolian translation and then in, in, in the, the mid-19th century, and then once it goes into Tibetan translation in 1917 in Hakha Mongolia, um, just a few years after the collapse of the Qing and just a little bit before the start of the socialist period, I found in the course of researching this book that the very first Chijung, the very first kind of history of the Dharma written by the Tibetan refugee community in India, you know, just new, you know, just reeling from being displaced by the Chinese annexation of the 
Tibetan plateau in the 1950s and, you know, organized in these really poor, disease-ridden, very precarious refugee camps in India early on in the 1960s. Now, um, uh, 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 Nima, um, who was actually Buryat himself and had kind of uh, anyways, that's a long history of him, but Nima, who is this important sort of figure in the early Tibetan refugee camps, he writes the first monastic history, uh, the history of kind of world history and religious history, social history uh, in the refugee community and um, the Lumrik Dome. And he starts the whole history. This is the first historical statement on the experience of inner Asian people in the wake of socialist violence, in the collapse of old political and social contexts and patronage networks, imperial frameworks for especially his Gaeluk tradition, literally standing in tuberculosis-ridden refugee camps, he starts that whole narrative with Fashian's record, not with the Kalachakra Tantra, not with the Tibetan imperial period, not with the Mong, not with the Yuan, not with Kublai Khan, not with uh, the Abhidharma, not with the Kalachakra. It starts with Fashian. Because Fashian, through the history I'm reconstructing in the 19th and 20th century, had already been made to, to tell and to have witnessed this deep history. And so the first statement of the Tibetan and Mongolian Siberian experience of exclusion and of erasure of mass state violence in the formation of the Soviet Union, the Mongolian People's Republic and the People's Republic of China, was to appeal to Fashian, of all people, which... Somehow, you know, through the story I explore in this book, told in profoundly new ways Mongolian and Tibetan history, but not from the Chinese, through repurposing, silencing, making do with poaching from European Orientalism, you know, and specifically the first professional state, scholarly statement about Buddhist Asia. So it's just these fascinating exchanges and erasures and possibilities in the context of inner Asia's very tragic and violent 20th century. Um, so, as you said in the conclusion chapter, this circulatory history of Fashian's record, uh, written in this book um, as a kind of anti-field history, is actually without any clear precedence. Um, so, for example, unlike models from world history and transcultural studies that tend to focus on movement, contact, and exchange, um, this book instead focuses innovatively, rather, on connected but place-bound interpreters who hardly knew of each other, right, and, and who began a new uh, quote from you from silence of analytical practices staged elsewhere in the world. Mm. Um, so what possibilities do you think your motto of anti-field history will spark in the field of Buddhist studies in the future and also beyond in other kinds of disciplines? Yeah, thank you. I mean, God, there's so much, but maybe, you know, just very briefly, I think that, I think that Buddhist studies is poised to contribute in really radical ways to conversations happening in adjacent fields, but that scholars of Buddhist studies are not often engaged in. They're not trained in, um, they might they might themselves poach from, you know, some bit of theory or set of questions around, you know, you know, gender history or, you know, uh, post-colonial studies or, or something like that to kind of think a little bit about their sources. But in terms of bringing the technical 
expertise in, for example, Tibetan and Mongolian scholastic writing and social history, an entire new archive of trans-Eurasian exchange opens. It's just that experts in these areas have not often ventured into the sort of, have not followed the, the sort of, the rooting, the sort of webs, the roots of the circ- of circulation to think about um, about these broader exchanges. And I think that what I wanted to do in this book is to just use this, in some ways, the excuse or the example of this one circulation from the courts of the Qing to the Parisian Academy to back to the Inner Asian Monastery and all the rest, just to show what is I think is possible for what I'm fantasizing about is a kind of critical Buddhist studies, much like scholars of Islamic studies have used their expertise and sources to push back against, say, liberal assumptions in the anthropology and history um, about the, um, the limits of thinking about, say, religion and the secular in a Christian frame and imposing that on the Islamic world, uh, much as scholars of indigenous studies have staged Profoundly challenging critiques of science, the idea, you know, scientism, of of, and of course the sort of decolonial, postcolonial kind of um, tradition, wanting to think about the limits and how to decenter and provincialize, of course, Europe, uh, the and the Enlightenment and the sort of the West as an organizing category in the way we do the humanities and social sciences. I think Buddhist studies is poised to not just reproduce some of those moves in the introduction, the quote-unquote theory section of a dissertation or a book, and then move on to business as usual, but profoundly change and provide the terms for, for some of this stuff, for not just naming European Eurocentric genealogies to our categories, but to actually model ways of doing scholarship that might decenter those or exceed them or kind of radically imagine how we might do something called history, um, you know, uh, today. And so, um, you know, there's a couple specific scholars I'm interested in, like Prasanta Dwara's work on circulatory history is kind of foundational. Um, um, Wael Halak's book on restating Orientalism was foundational for me. I really urge anyone who's interested in this stuff to take a read, to, to give it a read, because, you know, his point is like basically like, the failure of post-colonial, decolonial, and de-orientalizing scholarship has been that fundamentally they're still reproducing the same kind of notions of universalism, um, liberal assumptions, and so on. And so really there's no, there's no, even in the, they're reproducing the terms of uh, exclusion in in their critique. Anyway, it's a really fascinating book, but I'm, I'm wanting to think about how a kind of a Buddhist studies, or at least a critical historical investigation like I'm trying to model here really provides a whole resource to contribute to the critical Asian humanities, right? Um, a Buddhist studies that is foundational to and is doing what I, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book, Kwan Chen's book, Asia's Method, you know, it, it can provide an answer to his question, which for me is the question, right? Why is Asia or we might even say Buddhism or whatever, fill in the blank, always an object, but never a generative condition or source for theory or methodological innovation in the humanities. 
That's a profound question, I think, um, or at least that's one really worth thinking about. What happens when our methodological practices in the social history of knowledge, in Buddhist studies, are emerging from the sources we consider and not Foucault's work on the you know, 18th century prison in Europe? Right? What happens to when we allow our sources to bite back, as Michel de Salteau says, um, you know, when we allow our sources and the exchanges, and especially not just the impact and influences, but the erasures, the blind spots, the silences of our sources to demand new types of methodological treatment. In other words, I'm just like profoundly impatient with just pointing and saying, yeah, Buddhism has a Eurocentric genealogy, the Orientalism, it's like, fine, absolutely. And what? What is, what, let's, like, what is, Point to me some example in the world of a de-imperialized experiment in scholarship. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Show me an example of something in Buddhist studies that is actually modeling and exploring how to do this outside of these Eurocentric genealogies. I mean, um, we can point to them all day long, and that's important. Um, and we ourselves are implicated. We are ultimately pointing back to the social side of our own scholarship. And what? I want, you know, so I'm just like wanting to think about possibilities and wider conversations um, to be thinking about, um, you know, thinking about our own scholar, what I imagine this leading to ultimately is our own social site of interpretation, the prohibitions and permissions that organize our own scholarship today as being of a single field of inquiry with our the primary sources that we explore. We are all already in our primary sources. They are, you know what I mean? I want us to be thinking much on the model of scholars like Bernard Cohen and others, Michel Troyot and others who have thought about the colony and the, you know, the, the frontier and the, the metropole, the colonizer and the colonized and so on as a single field of inquiry. For me, it's a single field of what we are doing when we write or when someone's reading the scholarship and when we teach today and our sources. And we, we are all, we need to implicate ourselves fundamentally. And that's where these like radical new methodological possibilities happen. And Buddhist studies can be at the center of that, not just some intellectual backwater as Gregory Chopin has famously called Buddhist studies because it's being so siloed and unengaged with what are the obvious implications of our scholarship? So that's that's my manifesto in this book. And there's, I think, lots of other folks I'm engaged with in the book and kind of historians outside of Buddhist studies, but maybe that's all I'll say here since I know we're, I'm, I'm getting too excited and I'll blab on all morning, so. <laughs> oh no, this is so great. I, I love this, I love this. And, and like you said, I mean, this book can definitely be read as a manifesto. Um, and the book actually ends with a complete annotated English translation, your translation, right, of the Tibetan version of Fashion's record, which was produced by Zawa Damdam at the turn of the 20th century. And of mm-hmm. course, this Tibetan version was translated from Dorji Bandarov's Mongolian translation of <laughs> about Rumasat's <laughs> French translation of Fashian's Chinese version of the Foguoji. Um, mm-hmm. So your English translation here in the book is read line by line against the Mongolian, French, and Chinese with page numbers and notes about continuities and discrepancies across all four versions 
uh, provided in the end notes. Um, this is actually really, really quite amazing to read. Um, it, <laughs> it really engages you uh, flipping through the pages. It's, it's really fascinating to compare and contrast. Uh, so tell us more about your translation process. I, I guess by participating in this chain of translation, uh, I guess that also makes you right a, a part of the circulatory history and the story. Uh, what notable translation kind of choices and uh, interventions and reinterpretations, I guess, did you make? Um, how do you envision your translation, which is actually 63 pages long, <laughs> quite long, uh, quite rich, mm-hmm. um, and the rest of the book to be taught and discussed? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think I mean, in general, I, I mean, um, you know, it's a dream that at least you have read it. Even one person has read this, but if it ever is taught and if people, if it ever gets any attention and folks get interested in it, um, you know, I, I hope that it's read not just for some new information about the social and intellectual history of early 19th century France in connection to the Qing court and in relation to the Mongolian and Tibetan Siberian intellectual history, you know, there's, I think, a lot in this story that is maybe interesting for people with that kind of more specialized interest. But, you know, I really want this to be read, and I wrote it in the way that I did and and worked so hard at it, because it was a very difficult project to, to work on it, it. It really was a total grind, um, is that I want it to be a um, uh, maybe not a, you know, methodological example. I'm not claiming that this is a perfect project or there's probably tons of flaws, but even in thinking about the flaws and the limits of what I did, I want people to, I hope that it inspires people to be thinking about um, topics of questions of method, methodology in what we're doing in the humanities and social sciences and particular radical possibilities in methodology, um, um, both, you know, very broadly, um, but also kind of moving from those of us working in something called Buddhist studies and, you know, um, regional histories and all the rest. So, um, you know, in, in the way that, you know, we think of like as a single continuous field, our own interpretive spaces and the chains of interpretation and silence and speech that um, in which we are encountering and redoing and um, you know uh, the the stuff we consider so uh, anyways that's kind of the broader what I would love and so when it comes to the translation I mean yeah this was a this was a I wanted I wanted folks reading it uh uh, I wanted it to be open to people who would, you know, were familiar already with the Chinese text, which of, which of course is so widely studied. Although there's not really a single good, full trans teachable translation. I mean, there's a couple out there, but um, in fact, some of them are still the 19th century ones that kind of follow after Abel Musset uh, in English, German, French. They're still taught in some ways. So I thought, okay, well, um, uh, uh, it's good to just get a maybe a complete annotated translation of the bare frameworks of the text. But, but of course I needed to somehow account for these chains of translations and these very different translation choices. So the only way I could really think about doing that, um, and the publisher was generous in letting me make this book a little longer than they normally would have, but they definitely weren't going to allow me to do like the full Tibetan version, the t- full Mongolian version, the full French version. <laughs> that would be great. Been, I know it would have been. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, essentially, like the work was done, but they would have, you know, it would have been like eight hundred pages long. Wow. Um, so what I ended up deciding to do is just a strategy was like uh, to end with the latest version, the nearest version, you know, the one that accounted for all the previous translations, which was the the Tibetan one. 
um, which and to represent the way that that text uh, represented the the root text, the core of Fashan's work, but also was so heavily annotated. You know, you can see in the translation in the appendix of this book, not just the um, uh, the Tibetan translation of the words of the of Fashan's text, you know, read against the Mongolian and the French and the Chinese, but but also. Zawadamdin's heavy annotations and his asides and his reflections, which bring in all kinds of fascinating materials and uh, and and bring Fashan's work into the, all kinds of really interesting wider conversations in inner Asian intellectual history at the time. Um, but then I, th- I needed that to be connected to the Mongolian, and I needed to make all kinds of points, kind of of diversions and silencing that I never got to in the book because they were those chapters were already too long. Um, and also just basically so so readers could follow along. If you read Tibetan, you can read uh, it against and Mongolian, you can read those two aside side by side. if if you can read French and and Mongolian, you can read those or Tibetan and Chinese, you know what I mean? Like just as a guide for people to read in the way that I read this these materials and 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 sort of see the whole thing play out. Um, and, and, you know, there is a, a developed scholarship, of course, on Fashan's record and, and these kind of travelogues like with Shantang and Yijing and these guys um, in the context of East Asian history and Buddhist studies. Um, but the, inner, the, the fact that there is a Tibetan and Mongolian translation and that these are radically new texts, actually, um, is completely unknown to East Asianists. Um, and so, you know, this is a classic of Asian literature and these, these fascinating late chapters in that history were unknown. So I just felt this sort of responsibility to get the Tibetan version out there and with this annotation such that you can get a real sense of what the Mongolian text is as well. Um, but then also follow along with Abelkhi Musad and, and see about how they're they're all reading but and, and also erasing and working outside of the possibilities opened and closed by what came before. So... Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is the only, maybe there is a better way of organizing it, but this is the only one that I could come up with um, that that would allow all those things to sort of happen. And I hope it's a teachable and readable text and people can um, access all four versions of this text and get a good sense of how they depart from one another and how specific phrases and even nouns and words are so wildly, you know, uh, are translated, so are read so differently and translated so differently um, in all, in many many ways that I I didn't explore in the book itself, which is looking at bigger themes and and things like that. Yeah, thank you. It's really really easy to follow along, and um, and it's beautifully mm-hmm. translated. So I, I really look forward to you know teaching with this eventually someday. Yeah, thank yeah. You. Great. Um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time already, um, but we have one last final question before we let you go. Uh, so tell sure. us a little bit about what you're working on right now, your your, your current projects um, that you're working at, uh, you're working on at Columbia. And, and also what is one new book that you've been reading, academic or not, um, that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, boy. OK, well, um, I've got a few things on the go. Um, um, but uh, a few big translations that I'm working on. Uh, but the the new monograph project, I want to do a history of the Gobi Desert as a site of interaction and connection that's sort of modeled on these great historical studies of these aquatic spaces like the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, the Black, Black Atlantic, and so on. 
Um, and I want to do a kind of experimental combination of environmental and intellectual history where I'm looking at in the 18th and 19th century and early 20th century, how interacting with the geographic media of the desert itself, literally pushing through sand, unearthing, excavating, is a sort of shared project, not just among, say, Buddhist scholastics or Gobi dwellers um, uh, uh, who live there, you know, pulling tantric prophecy out of the sand or the sky or interacting with rocks and space and air, um, you know, manipulating geographic media in order to produce, you know, new visions of history. Uh, but this is also the age of exploration when, you know, botanists and paleontologists and archaeologists and ethnologists and, of course, missionaries are all descending on the Gobi. And I want to write a history of the Gobi that's where the Gobi is not just a stage, but a, a an agent and a set of material possibilities for all these overlapping ways of sort of timing the present. And so I'm kind of doing this and I'm, I have, actually have a chapter on this coming out in a a book by published by Cambridge, um, edited by Prasanjit Dwara, actually, thinking about third space, hybridity, and ecotones, like ecological frontiers. And I'm sort of thinking about, I want to think about not just spatial frontiers, but temporal frontiers, multiple temporal frontiers of 19th and early 20th century inner Asia through these overlapping kind of modes of interacting with the desert itself, but what are the material affordances um, of the Gobi, Gobi and how do these produce all kinds of competing and different sort of models of sovereignty of place and time that both include and exceed in ways that I've just been describing with this other book, you know, what we would normally call like Buddhist scholastic knowledge, imperial knowledge, Christian missionary knowledge, and these emergent sort of um, universalist discourses in like geology, botany, biology, um, paleontology, you know. So, you know, Silk Road excavations, um, dinosaur bones, all the tantric prophecy, mummies, caves, half-buried ruins, um, and also the um, the sort of um, topographical and climactic kind of geographical um, 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 structures and systems of the Gobi itself as a, pos- as a field of possibility and kind of an agent in some ways for making time. So I want to kind of, it's kind of like I want to do a take on material histories of sciences, which have been really kind of focusing on like how the lab and new instruments and like the material culture of science, like determine scientific outcomes. I want to think about environments as material conditions for historical knowledge. And I want, and through that, I want to write a history of the Gobi Desert, which is, you know, really, there's not like a, a good history of the Gobi Desert out there. So I kind of want to write that. <laughs> wow, amazing. Your your new projects are always um, kind of surprising, uh, at least whenever whenever I he- get to hear about them. Um, but also somewhat, you know, they're, it just makes sense. Like, I, I, I know why you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, you get it, yeah. Amazing, amazing. This is so cool. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, when you sign up for these Google Scholar notifications, like whenever somebody publishes on a topic that you sign up for, you get notifications through email. And then I, mm-hmm. I have a, a, a system for Inner Mongolia. And mm-hmm. more than half of the paper, article, academic work notifications I receive are on paleontology in Inner Mongolia. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah so it, it, it's it's amazing to see how you tie all those together. 
<laughs> well, we'll see if it ties together. But you know, there's some great books about um, exploration and indigenous histories of the Arctic, um, which is kind of a bit of an inspiration to be thinking about um, centering the Gobi as this really vital place of Eurasianist exchange and possibilities. So anyways, we'll see where I get to, but uh, maybe one day I'll be back here. I'm, I'm going to be focusing it on it this next year. I hope I really hope to make some progress. So we'll see what, what happens. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, and, and one book that you would recommend? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just look at what's literally in front of me right now. Um, uh, Anna Singh's The Mushroom at the End of the World on the possibility of life in a, in capitalist ruins is a really interesting look actually at Matsutake mushroom harvesting, <laughs> but, but as a experiment in sort of using fungal objects, but also models in the way that we might think about a anthropology appropriate for the Anthropocene. Um, meeting collaborative, decentered. She's also working in a sort of Deleuzian and Guattarian frame, like I am in the book that we just discussed. Uh, and thinking about like also the obligations of ethnographic knowledge. And anyways, it's a really fascinating, very readable, but also like theoretically illuminating book that um, I've been meaning to read for a long time. And I'm just, it's getting me stoked on writing this Gobi book, I have to say. <laughs> and then I'll say the one other one I've read recently, which was really great, was um, a book called The World in the Whale. And this is a one of a bunch of awards. And it's kind of, on the one hand, a natural history. Well, it's, it's a history of interactions between the human, between humans and whales. But basically, she, the author uses the embodiment, the biology of whales as a sort of lens through which to think about ecology and human history over the last 500 years and it's the most beautifully written book um most beautifully written uh kind of non-fiction book i've read for a very long time and um it somehow tells like a profoundly disturbing but important story of you know that ties together like capitalism <laughs> um you know oceans whale biology um, and, and also which implicates us in profound ways. I, I can't recommend that more. You will not be in the same, you know, will not think of whales or yourself the same after reading that book. So those are two that I have on my desk in front of me right now for some reason. So maybe those are all the ones I'll say. Great. Th thank you for these recommendations. Well, thank you so much for, you know, um, recording this session with us. Um, your book has been such and wild adventure for me to read. I really, really enjoyed reading it. I've basically read it from cover to cover in like a couple of days. And I really loved it. Thank you so much for writing it. And uh, of course, taking the time to speak with us and share your work uh, with a wider audience. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for your interest and for, um, you know, um, asking such great questions. It's a real, real pleasure to share, um, share, share about this book with you. I really appreciate it.